a novel that imagines an America where an other world is possible while confronting the evils of today. The assumption that things won't go wrong doesn't make you an optimist. It makes you like a danger to yourself and others, right? That's the like the choice that says, oh, we don't need any lifeboats for this Titanic, right? The thing that, that is hopeful, the thing that is prudent is to understand that when things go wrong, that we might be able to do something about them and that we might be able to anticipate things going wrong and take mitigating steps. That's Cory Doctorow. We talk with him about his new novel, The Lost Cause. He describes it as a solar punk science fiction novel of hope amidst the climate emergency. This is Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rihanna. What would America look like 30 years from now if the Green New Deal were mainstream? A universal jobs guarantee? Renewable energy, the law of the land? Social solidarity, the guiding principle of society? Now, imagine that the forces of reaction are anything but vanquished. The tax-avoiding tech billionaires have teamed up with MAGA remnants to overthrow progress and reinstate reaction. And the climate crisis is still ongoing. What's a young person to do? Especially because the MAGA forces are armed to the teeth. And the young person in question is related to one of them, his own grandfather. That's the dilemma facing the 18-year-old protagonist of Cory Doctorow's new novel, The Lost Cause. The questions it poses are salient to our current moment. How to protect democracy against violent extremism. How to build social solidarity within the pressure cooker of crises that threaten to divide us. And how to use technology responsibly for human good instead of for the profit of a few. Those questions and more are wrapped in a package of vivid storytelling, something the incredibly prolific writer Cory Doctorow excels at. Doctorow is a science fiction writer, activist, and journalist. He's the author of many books, including several that he's been on Writer's Voice to talk about, Walk Away, Radicalized, and Makers. In addition to the novel The Lost Cause, his most recent nonfiction book is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. In 2020, Dr. O was inducted into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. He's the author of the popular website, craphound.com. Corey Doctorow, welcome back to Writer's Voice. Thank you for having me back on. It's a pleasure as always. Well, I love this book, The Lost Cause, a novel of truth and reconciliation in our polarized future. They're not usually those kinds of uh, subtitles to novels. 
because I'm so engaged with so many of these issues uh, about climate and Green New Deal, as my audience knows. First, though, I'm curious, you dedicate this book to David Graeber, as you say, whose legacy is assured. He was a guest on this show. Oh, wow. Back in 2011 to talk about debt. And I wanted to ask you, why did you dedicate it to him? And what do you mean by whose legacy is assured? Well, I knew David. We were friends and colleagues, and we had done an event together not long before he died. He died very suddenly, really without warning, and uh, had been in, in what seemed like fine rude health just before he went. And the first of the posthumous books that came out subsequent to that is a book he wrote with uh, David Wengro called The Dawn of Everything. And it's a kind of heterodox fusion of anthropology and archaeology to reconsider the story we have about prehistory. There's a kind of received narrative about prehistory that there is a uh, foreordained way in which our civilizations unfold, that we have a kind of non-hierarchical, you know, semi-edenic, if somewhat calorie-deprived existence as hunter-gatherers. And then we put down roots and we create agriculture and agriculture creates surplus and surplus creates bureaucracies, hierarchy and authority. And all of the ruins and the archaeological finds that we have made prehistoric people have been interpreted through this lens. And what they point out in their book is that the interpretations really stretch credulity, that they're doing a lot of gymnastics to figure out how to fit ruins of enormous cities in Turkey in which there is no evidence that there was ever a bureaucracy or a hierarchy and like literally every dwelling is exactly the same as every other dwelling and to somehow explain how you know the priesthood and the bureaucrats and the politicians must have you know lived somewhere else or maybe they each had three of these little apartments or whatever and what they say is that actually like the and this is where the anthropology comes in which is Graeber's specialty. As an anthropologist, you find civilizations all the time that are non-hierarchical and centralized, that are hierarchical and decentralized, and everything in between. That there is nothing foreordained about our living arrangements that dictates our political arrangements, and that human beings are always able to choose, that everything is contingent, that nothing is foreordained, that our social lives can be anything that we want. And so much of the conservative project of the last 40 years that got us into this environmental catastrophe that we're in is grounded in the extinguishing of imagination. You know, Margaret Thatcher's maxim that there is no alternative, which is um, a demand disguised as an observation, right? When, when she says there is no alternative, she means, God damn it, stop trying to think of alternatives. And, you know, as a science fiction writer, like my job is to come up with like half a dozen alternatives before breakfast. It's not hard to imagine alternatives. And once you can imagine them, you, you can start asking, well, why don't we have them? Because if you can't imagine an alternative, then the people who are on top are on top because that's the way it's got to be and not because they've done something to claw their way to the top and to keep anyone else from taking that position, taking over that role. And so I think that David inspired so many people to think about the contingency of the arrangement they find themselves in. And therefore, to imagine what else we might have, that that legacy is very firmly assured. And he did it through a combination 
of scholarship and rabble rousing that I find very uh, exciting as a model for what someone who cares about this stuff can be. You don't have to choose among the, you know, the false binary of either you produce uh, scholarly work that contributes to the literature, but is otherwise uh, of narrow interest to the broad population, or you write popular books, but then you're just an author, or you become like a protester who lives in an Occupy camp. And David really showed that you could do all of those things and that they were not exclusive of one another, but rather intensely complementary of one another. And that, I think, is just such an inspiration to me. And it was such an inspiration to me as I was thinking about this book and writing this book that given how recently David had gone and given how important he was to this book, that he really had to be the person I dedicated it to. Oh, that's wonderful. And listeners can hear my interview with David Wengro about that very book that he co-wrote with David Graeber at writersvoice.net, and we will repost it. It was also very exciting to me. And yes, it's a good introduction into um, this book, The Lost Cause, because this novel takes place around mid-century in Burbank, California, of our century. The protagonist is a 19-year-old Brooks Palazzo, an orphan who at the start of the novel is living with his grandfather, who took him in when his parents died. But the context is all about kind of another world is possible. What has happened to America in the intervening 30 years from now? And, and then later after that, you can tell us about the characters. Yeah, well, getting back here to the contingency of history, you know, when you look at like how incredible or terrible things have happened in our own true history. It, it, there's always just someone who's at the right place at the right time. There's a bunch of stars that align in just the right way. I think about the incredible transformative chair of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Kahn, who's who's right now running the agency in ways that we haven't seen in, in like literally since the Carter administration doing so much good. And she only got confirmed because there were a few populist Republicans who were really angry at tech platforms because they thought conservative culture warriors were being deplatformed or shadow banned. And so they voted for her as kind of a protest vote. And then she rocketed into this position and has had such an incredible run of it that just keeps getting better. And so the future history, the fictional history of the lost cause is a similarly contingent set of moments where the thing that all kicks it off is an election in Canada where the two big parties, the conservatives and the liberals, are quite sure that one of them is going to win, as is the moderately sized social democratic third party, the New Democrats, who, as a result of their conviction that they can't possibly win, do the glass cliff thing of finally allowing an indigenous woman to lead the party into an election because they don't think she could possibly become prime minister. And then the other two parties through nothing to do with the with the new democratic party they just have their own internal scandals and they implode and she ends up prime minister effectively by default at the moment in which calgary is once again being wiped off the map by floods cuz calgary is canada's houston we we built it in the middle of a floodplain and every couple of years it gets wiped out and then we just go ahead and rebuild it at enormous public expense and put a lot of people in harm's way and she says we're not doing that this time we're moving calgary uphill we're moving it off the floodplain. And this is such a breath of relief to everyone in the country to finally have someone in office who takes the 
manifest risk of the climate emergency with the seriousness and urgency that warrants it, that she finds herself at the front of an enormously powerful political movement that ends up doing things like replacing all the major air corridors in Canada with high-speed rail and weatherizing and solarizing all of the homes in Canada, which, you know, consume a lot of energy. Canada Canada has a, actually a higher per capita energy footprint than Americans because we live like Americans, but we're colder. And so there's solarizing and weatherizing and adaptation of cities for climate hardening, uh, moving coastal cities inland. And this kicks off a global movement of young people who call themselves the Blue Helmets and are sent abroad all over the world to do this work with locals who then create another pool of young people from among those locals to go abroad and do it again. And there's this circulating movement of millions of young people who are doing the transformative centuries-long project of this. And the book's action opens at this moment in which all of that is threatened. Because after two U.S. presidential administrations that were as transformative as the Canadian one, and a third where the vice president, who's not very good, bumbles his way through four years, we now have a hard right reactionary climate denying presidency. And the new president is scraping away all of the gains that have been made, backed by a coalition on the one hand of, of seafaring billionaire tax dodgers who left the country when America started to embrace a, a muscular progressive tax regime that uh, was aimed at extinguishing billionaires and who now are living out a kind of Neil Stevenson live action role-playing game where they have built an armada of aircraft carriers and super yachts and cruise ships and they circulate the world's oceans trying to convince poor people to adopt Bitcoin. And they have their useful idiots in America, the, the people they've convinced, the turkeys they've convinced to vote for Christmas, who are MAGA nostalgic white nationalist movement who have been disarmed by finally America adopting a moderate gun control regime and who are now ready to dig up the guns they buried in the hills when it all started and take back the country by force. And this is the moment where the action opens. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Cory Doctorow about his new sci-fi novel, a solarpunk novel of hope about the climate emergency called The Lost Cause. And it opens, as I said before, with 19-year-old Brooks Palazzo, who is an orphan. Tell us about him, his parents, and his MAGA grandfather. Yeah, so Brooks is, he's the son of two Americans who went to Canada for the Canadian miracle, for this moment where Calgary was being rebuilt. In the same way that you had people from all over the world who flocked to Spain to fight the fascists during World War II, people from all over the world flocked to Canada to help relocate Calgary and, and move it off the floodplain. And his parents are, are part of this movement because the climate emergency is still happening in this book. This is not a book about the climate emergency ending. It's a book about us taking it seriously. And so all of the harms that we have currently locked in by blowing past so many climate deadlines are still unfolding, but we're doing something about it. There are new zoonotic plagues that keep sweeping the globe, becoming epidemics or pandemics, because we're destroying so much habitat, either through fire and flooding or through human expansion. And they die in one of these plagues, and he's orphaned. And he ends up moving back to Burbank, where his parents were from, 
to live with his grandfather, who is a widowed, hard right, MAGA supporting conspiratorialist who is part of this movement that ends up locked in a kind of terrorist action to shatter the Green New Deal. And Brooks is now at the point where he is ready to graduate high school and finally leave his grandfather's house and go elsewhere when in the first chapter his grandfather dies and he ends up owning his grandfather's house, which is kind of how he ends up on this adventure that caused Bill McKibben to call this book the first great NIMBY novel or YIMBY novel rather because he he decides that he is not going to be a part of this. Yes, in my backyard, in other words. Yeah. Now, one of the tropes of this novel is the phrase, uh, Brooks is part of the first generation in a century that didn't fear the future. Explain this phrase, and there's a kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, quality to your use of it. Yeah, so I envision that phrase as a kind of politician's slogan, a kind of Obama, yes, we can, that even if it inspired you with repetition, it becomes a little hackneyed. And, you know, I do think that we fear the future right now. I think there is a widespread fear of the future and not an unreasonable one. And, you know, the the idea that we take the climate emergency seriously enough to do something about it is really the idea that there might be a, a tonic against fear of the future lurking in a muscular course of action that that the reason we fear the future is not just because we understand what harms are locked in by climate inaction, but also our understanding that we're not going to do anything about it, right? That this bus is hurtling towards the cliff edge, but the people in the first class seats refuse to accept that there is a cliff edge and insists that we are all going to end up just fine. And if there is a cliff edge, then maybe we'll just drive so fast that we hurdle over the cliff and reach the other side. And if that doesn't work, we can probably build wings for the bus before it hits the rocks at the bottom. And that's so terrifying, right? To be to be hurtling towards the, our foreseeable doom and to not have any hope of averting the disaster, even if that aversion of disaster comes in the form of, you know, something that, that is far from perfect, like you know, swerving the bus and it rolling and a bunch of people breaking their legs and us being stranded in the desert near this cliff as a result, even that is better than going over the cliff. And I think that if we were to take this muscular action, we might stop fearing the future, that we might maybe dread the amount of work that's on the horizon. We might feel overwhelmed by how much work we're going to have to do, but we won't fear the future the way that we fear it now. And even just taking action itself, the act of taking action is an antidote to a terror. Uh, I know that, you know, a few years ago before I got so active in the climate movement as I am now, you know, I was in that uh, existential despair. I mean, I can't say I'm not still in it. I am. <laughs> but I don't feel it in the same way when I'm being active. Yeah, I think that you know, some of the neoliberal project of locating all problems in individual action is really a powerful source of despair. Because if you've been told that the only election that matters is the one where you vote with your wallet, and you shop very carefully, and still the world is hurtling towards disaster, 
it's very easy to feel like nothing will work, right? If you've been convinced that there is no such thing as a successful collective action, that governments are intrinsically corrupt and incompetent and can't do anything, that, you know, whatever praxis it was that caused us to have, I don't know, like an interstate highway system and sanitation and like a space program, they're like lost arts, like like embalming pharaohs and things that we just can't possibly do today. I think that, you know, if that's if that's where you're at, then it is easy to really despair. So to follow up on something that you just said, I, I think a lot of people don't know this yet. And that is that, yes, we have locked in some things. We've locked in sea level rise for sure, because of the Arctic, once it begins to melt, is going to melt for a very long time. But in terms of heat, in terms of, of the terrible heat that we've been experiencing and will experience if we keep on going, if we stopped emitting carbon pollution, uh, we went fully, you know, 100% fossil free, even by 2050, within seven to 10 years of that, we will already start cooling down. This is new research that's been done by Michael Mann. And um, I think a lot of people are not aware of this. Michael Mann is, you know, one of the world's greatest climate uh, scientists. So it's actually more hopeful. We haven't closed the window if we stop now, we do have a way to avoid some of the terrible impacts of climate change. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think that, you know, the difference between catastrophe and disaster is whether we actually like take stuff in hand. It is not pessimistic to think that things might go wrong, right? The assumption that things won't go wrong doesn't make you an optimist. It makes you like a danger to yourself and others. Right. That's the like the choice that says, oh, we don't need any lifeboats for this Titanic. Right. The thing that that is hopeful, the thing that that is prudent is to understand that when things go wrong, that we might be able to do something about them and that we might be able to anticipate things going wrong and take mitigating steps and to to say, all right, well, we are imperfect. So we need to have backstops for the, for the way that we we conduct ourselves and for the way that we construct our systems. And I think that like. Again, if you can imagine that we can be prudent and smart and have some foresight and can muster collective will through explicit mechanisms that aren't just market mechanisms, and all of these things are, are like empirically true, these are all things that we do, then there is scope for hope. And moreover, there's marching orders, right? The marching orders are, let's do something about this by pressurizing our political leaders instead of, you know, spending hours lovingly washing our plastics before putting them in the recycling bin and pretending that they will ever be recycled when in fact, you know, less than 10% of the of the plastic that it goes into recycling bins is ever recycled, it all just ends up getting burned. And then or you know, fretting endlessly about the fact that we're using single-use plastics rather than insisting that we have a system that doesn't demand that we use single-use plastics. 
Yeah, so let's get back to this this book, The Lost Cause, because you take up a lot more issues. Really, these are intersecting issues. You take up more issues than the climate emergency narrowly defined. You take up the refugee crisis. In fact, the action takes place around a refugee crisis involving internal refugees. Of course, that is a link to climate. Tell us about what's going on and also the Internal Displaced Persons Act of 2026. We're talking two years from now. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, the dating is a little uh, uh, optimistic or or uh, fantastical. Uh, but uh, yeah, look, America's gonna ha- already has a bunch of internal refugees, right? Think about the people from New Orleans who ended up in Houston after Katrina. They're internal refugees. There's like no other honest way to describe who those people were and what what, what was happening to them. And that's going to happen more, right? Again, we have a bunch of climate harms locked in. Again, even if we were to address some of the the heat issues, like California is still going to be sensitive to wildfires. We have also unwisely built at the urban wildlife interface, even as we had a 250-year war on controlled burns that were part of the forest management that were typical of um, indigenous people who lived here for thousands of years beforehand. So there's just going to be a lot of, uh, there's a lot of debt that's going to come due that is going to make certain places uninhabitable. In addition to rising seas, making coastal cities uninhabitable. When you sink heat into the world's oceans, the way that it comes out is by melting polar caps, right? Like the second law of thermodynamics is not up for grabs. As I sometimes say, you know, one of the reasons the seas are still rising in this book, even though they've they're they're getting pretty close to to uh, zero emissions, is that this is a science fiction novel and not a fantasy novel, and all that heat is going to go somewhere. We have warmed the ocean and the the caps are melting. We may f- find some mitigation tactics about uh, keeping them from melting too fast or caving off or whatever, but you know, it is what it is. And so, uh, with an uh, internal refugee problem. You can pretend it's not there. You can pretend it's an issue of individual responsibility. I, I think it was Ben Shapiro who said, even if you think Miami is going to be underwater, why is that a problem? Those people can just sell their houses and move. And Ben Shapiro failed to uh, elucidate this position, particularly he, he never mentions who might buy the houses if if the, the Miami is underwater. <laughs> and so – you know, this is a novel in which Miami is a mangrove swamp and is permanently uninhabitable. And I, I wrote that sequence where Miami becomes uninhabitable after speaking at a conference in Miami that the mayor of Miami and the, uh, the congressman for Miami were both speaking at. It was a right-leaning conference about tech policy where I'd gone to talk about why it is not anti-conservative to want antitrust and tech, how that's a value that conservatives and progressives can agree on, even if we do so for different reasons. And uh, the day that that conference happened, there had been a storm, not a big storm, right? Like just a normal Florida tropical storm. And the streets between the hotel and the conference center, which is like a half mile walk, were shin deep in water and not water, but sewage. And you had to circumnavigate most of the downtown core to get from the hotel to the conference center. And like the mayor stood up for his morning keynote and said, you know, Miami has a future. This is where you can all come and like do your Bitcoin stuff. Um, We'll be here forever. And I was like, oh God, they're doomed, right? Like they are doomed. 
because maybe you could build seawalls and levees and, you know, stilts and whatever. But like a city that doesn't manage its sanitation is, you know, a cholera plague pit. And if you have shin deep human sewage outside the conference hall and the mayor saying, I see no problem with this, you are all going to die. And so, uh, you know, that was that was quite a clarion call for me. And a lot of people in Miami, through no fault of their own, are going to end up climate refugees, as are Houstonites, as are New Yorkers, as are people in, who live near me in Southern California. And so we are going to have to confront that. And if we don't do anything about it, right, if we just say, okay, you guys figure it out yourselves, it will just create political instability. Like that doesn't actually work. It just creates worse problems, right? Because then you have – then you're trying to address a refugee crisis in a politically unstable place. There is no way that you just get all the refugees who've lost their homes to dig holes, climb inside, and pull the dirt down on top of themselves. And so this is a world in which we have managed through a contingent miracle to like do the very bare minimum of prudent governance – which is to say we have seen that there is a massive refugee crisis and did something about it. Cory Doctorow, stay tuned for more of our conversation after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like interview transcripts and book excerpts. Now let's get back to my conversation with Cory Doctorow about his newest sci-fi novel, The Lost Cause. So this this uh, act of 2026, the Internal Displaced Persons Act, guarantees uh, emergency housing for people who are internally displaced. And there is a crisis in the Central Valley. There are refugees coming to Burbank. They're being promised emergency housing. And this brings out the local MAGAs who managed to get the policy changed. And I wanted to ask you about the discussion of political power and where it comes from in this novel, in The Lost Cause, because they're really a tiny minority of the population. You have a city that's running on the principles of the Green New Deal already, and yet they are able to stir the pot enough to get the local government officials to back down. Well, it's not just that. There is an injunction, a nationwide injunction that happens, but that's just more of the same writ large. Talk about the power of right-wing extremists like the MAGAs in this book to enact their will on a country where most people don't agree with them. Well, let me quibble with you a little here because the, the, what happens on the national stage in this book is not the same thing writ large. It is a coordinated big money campaign. And part of the point of this book and the action that it depicts is to really elucidate the way in which people power and money power come together in right-wing movements, how they strengthen each other. Basically, the elitist projects of preserving the power that comes from wealth are necessarily anti-majoritarian. If you are interested in the destiny of the 1% to the exclusion of the destiny of everyone else, then you are by definition 
making 99% of the world worse off. And so if you're making 99% of the world worse off, that is not going to be a popular policy. And so you need to do something else to get those people involved. And so for the MAGAs, this is just a purely xenophobic project, right? Like they're, they're just like, we don't want these people, the people who are coming to them from the Central Valley, it helps that they are Hispanic racialized people because they're agricultural workers who've been forced off the land. You know, so so they constitute a um, a racialized minority that it's easy to get xenophobes to work against. But the big money part comes in where white shoe corporate firms across America file injunctions over all emergency housing in every state in the union, in every county courthouse, citing federal environmental law. And, you know, this is another thing that I'm at pains to try and elucidate for my my comrades is that a lot of the policies that we think up are aimed at our adversaries and we don't think about how they would blow back against us. And in particular, the mistake that we make is we assume that uh, civil procedure will be equally available to all parties when the reality is that civil procedure is disproportionately available to people who have money because civil procedure is something that you invoke by paying fancy pants lawyers. And so the fancy pants lawyers file these injunctions everywhere. And this is based on something that that I've actually seen in my own activist work, where we saw uh, at one point bills filed in 20 state houses across America that would have basically banned MP3 players in the early 2000s. And it was the record industry. And they just hired law firms and lobbyists to get bills introduced within a, it wasn't all on the same day, but it was within about three days of each other in, I think it was 20 state houses. And it's hard to express just how terrifying that is as an activist, like how outmatched you feel as an activist when that happens. And I really wanted to recreate that in this book and really explore when we say, well, money is power, right? What do we mean when we say money is power? Like, how does the power come from the money? Um, what does it get you? Like, what do you buy in order to have power from your money? And one of the things you do is you buy an injunction in every, in every courthouse in the nation. You know, and also this whole use of environmental laws, as you talk about the, the blowback. I mean, uh, we've seen this a lot here where I live on the East Coast. We just opened the first major commercial wind farm in the country, South Fork Wind. Uh, and we had to fight for years to get this uh, going because local billionaires teamed up with local fishermen to make a lot of environmental supposedly environmental claims against wind, all of which are bogus. You know, they claimed it would destroy the fishing industry. Actually, wind, offshore wind farms are create great habitat for fish. They kill birds. Well, they do kill some birds, but climate change kills a lot more birds. And wind farms uh, have been able to create the kind of technology where the amount of birds that they actually kill is is probably a lot less than your household cat. Right. Without ever talking about the impact, of course, of, of fossil fuels on these very same environmental populations. So I thought this was a, a really important point there. 
And when you talk about the money, you're you're also referring to the flotilla. You didn't name it before, but that's the the group of you know tax evaders who go around in their fancy yachts, and and the connection between them, as you just said, between them and and the little people on the ground. I'd like to ask you about the role of tech. I mean, you are so into uh, tech of a certain kind uh, in. Your last book, Walk Away, and in this book, there's a lot of tech used in very positive ways, but you you mentioned geoengineering and the blockchain cultists. I wonder if you could parse that. How do sure. you see technology being used positively and negatively? What are the principles we need in order to approach that issue? Well, so let me, uh, again, uh, with a, a very minor correction. So Walk Away was not my my most recent book. Uh, Walk Away was 2017. I write when I'm anxious. So I came out of lockdown with nine books. So Walk Away isn't even close to my last novel. It went Walk Away. Then there were four novellas called Radicalized. And then there was the book Attack Surface, which is the third little brother book. And then there was Red Team Blues, the first book in a trilogy. The second one's coming out in a couple of months. There was also... Two nonfiction books, three nonfiction books, How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism, Chokepoint Capitalism, and the Internet Con. There was a, a picture book for little children called Posey the Monster Slayer and um, and The Lost Cause. So those are all the books that have come out since Walkway. Let me just say in my defense, what I actually meant was the last book we spoke to you about. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, it's been it's been a minute. So look, I I think that what technology does is really interesting. But I think that what science fiction does with technology at its best is not merely elucidate what technology does, but give some uh, thought to who it does it for and who it does it to. And I think that is the most salient question we have about technology, that what it does is in, in, in some ways secondary to who it does it for and who it does it to. And getting back to, you know, a tonic against inevitabilism, right, and against the uh, idea that things are in, inevitably going to turn out one way or the other, that is what science fiction is good for, right, is to say, actually, it doesn't have to be this way. Actually, you know, we can imagine a version of social media that preserves the parts of social media that we love, right? The things that galvanize collective action for positive activity, where you might think of something like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter movement, where social media was like the glue that held together mass action that that really profoundly changed the world um, without having to take the, the parts that we don't like, the harassment and, and whatever, right? That, that, that there are like, and, and manipulation and so on, that, that the claim that these things are inseparable, that like, if you want to talk to your friends, you have to let Mark Zuckerberg spy on you. That's a claim that Mark Zuckerberg wants you to believe. And so when critics embrace that claim, right, when critics say social media is intrinsically surveillant and manipulative, they are helping Mark Zuckerberg off the hook because this makes what Mark Zuckerberg is doing to us something that he can't help but do rather than a choice that he has made. And blockchain, I'm very interested in this because I think of Kim Stanley Robinson and the Ministry for the Future seeing blockchain as a way to bypass you know, the fossil fuel addiction of the central banks and get us to a fossil-free future. 
What is your thinking about blockchain? I love Stan and I love that book, but he's just wrong. And I think that he subsequently has really backed off from the blockchain stuff in that book. He's become a lot, he's, he's been like, yeah, it was just a thing that, you know, seemed like a good futuristic element. And I was interested in, you know, how quantitative easing might, you know, be used to bribe the oil sector into not, you know, killing us all. But, you know, on sober reflection, I don't think it's going to work. And and I have this argument with people who are self-described leftists who believe in the blockchain. And what they say is, if you can maintain this ledger, I mean, the, it depends on how deep we want to get on this. But the, the thing that a blockchain is supposed to be is a read-only, inalterable public ledger. So that is to say it's like a spreadsheet that um, you can, or, or rather append only. So it's a spreadsheet that you can add things to the bottom of, but you can't alter. And it's not owned by anyone. It's something that everyone in the world kind of contributes to by doing this blockchain work, right? By, in the case of Bitcoin, doing this kind of mathematically expensive computing work over and over again. And in the case of uh, latter-day Ethereum, doing something called proof of stake, which is a kind of gambling where you you put up money as a kind of promise that you won't break the computing. And it's all grounded in Austrian economics, right? It's all grounded in like this idea that people are like uh, economically rational and that speculation is a legitimate form of economic activity and so on. And people say, well, look, if you had this ledger, if the ledger existed, then there could be some cool things you could do with it, right? You could create a carbon coin. You could create something else. You could have some kind of uh, registry of fair trade or or whatever. There's all kinds of proposals for how you could do it. You could, you could build a distributed autonomous organization, a DAO that would run as a kind of cooperative, but with a lot of the difficulties taken off your hands by the, the blockchain. And none of those claims really hold up. When you look at that stuff closely, what you see is that the benefits that they claim you would get from the blockchain are really grossly overstated. And that even when they're there, the only way that they can be realized is if we have an ongoing speculative market in financial assets that even the best case, the most leftist version of blockchain is grounded in a speculative financialized casino. And that's something that like the, the people who support it, when you pin them down, they're like, yeah, but that, you know, it'll just be finance weirdos who are doing that. And we'll get a kind of, um, we'll be able to like draft on the, their wasteful activity. And it's not true, right? Like the, the way that the, that casino runs is by roping in suckers with Super Bowl ads. The the house advantage is so steep in the cryptocurrency casino that you need new suckers all the time. And the thing is that without the suckers who are pumping money into the economy that causes the speculators to maintain the integrity of the blockchain, you don't have a blockchain, right? The blockchain ceases to exist. So whatever benefit you think you're gonna get, it starts to look a lot like that Ursula K. Le Guin story, the ones who walk away from Omelas, where you have like this utopian society, but it only works because somehow because there's this one child who's being tortured 
And the thing that is that is powering the blockchain that leftists say they find useful is exploitation of naive people who are putting up their savings in the hopes of living out a dignified retirement in an environment in which we've abandoned them. Here, here, and not to speak of the outsized carbon footprint of these operations by and large. I mean, proof of work is a little different, but Bitcoin, wow. Yeah, proof of stake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The people who say, when you say climate, climate, they say, well, the really stupid ones say, well, you know, banking has a big climate footprint. And who are you to say that this is socially useless way to put carbon into the atmosphere? We do lots of things that put carbon into the atmosphere. Why is shopping for your groceries worse than participating in the Bitcoin casino, <laughs> right? But the smart ones say, oh, no, it's we'll just do proof of stake. And then proof of stake doesn't have the climate footprint. And it doesn't. It's also highly centralized. This is the other thing that I forgot to say is that both the proof of work kind of Bitcoin style coins and the proof of stake post Bitcoin Ethereum style blockchains are incredibly centralized, despite the claims that they're decentralized and therefore resistant to the capture and control that has plagued our financial system. What you do, practically speaking, is trade the Federal Reserve and a few other important exchequers and federal regulators around the world for four billionaires in most of these blockchains. Uh, and so instead of being at the mercy of people who are at least hypothetically democratically accountable, you're just at the mercy of four billionaires who might even be anonymous. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Our guest this hour is the great science fiction writer and technology critic, Cory Doctorow. We're talking about his new novel, The Lost Cause, which he describes as a solar punk novel of hope about the climate emergency. Well, that was a great explanation. But let's move on to another really central point of this novel, The Lost Cause, the subtitle is A Novel of Truth and Reconciliation in Our Polarized Future. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of reconciliation in the book, but there is a discussion of how to reach that, you know, how, in fact, to defeat the MAGA crowd. And I found this really interesting because, on the one hand, there is uh, somewhat of a discussion of, you know, do we take up arms against people who are armed against us and, you know, are murderously attacking us? Or do we, in fact, do something quite different, and that is show the world, lead by example, rather than taking up arms? You write, one of the characters says, they win if we let them define the terms. We win if we show everyone that their terms are bullshit. Talk about you know, the thinking behind this part of your book, of your novel. Well, look, I, I spent a lot of my life trying to figure out how it is that things, battles that we thought we won, we have to keep fighting. And the realization that I had is that the people I'm fighting with feel the same way. Right. The people who think that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Brian Mulroney and Augusto Pinochet were right are aghast at the rise of democratic anti-neoliberal movements that are seeking to roll back their uh, project of 40 years. And, you know, when you see them getting more desperate and, you know, as they as the kids say, more mask off where they're saying, actually, maybe just we shouldn't let people vote anymore 
maybe the Supreme Court should make it legal to ban abortion in the states and leave it up to the states, and then maybe the states should ban putting abortion on the ballot paper. That desperation is the result of them feeling like their victory is turning into defeat. And, you know, Corey Robin, who's a great scholar of, of right-wing movements, who I read a lot of when I was working on this book, he actually thinks they're weak. He thinks that the desperation that we see now is the mark of weakness and not strength. And he kind of echoes something that I, that I got from China Mayville in uh, his sort of novelistic history of the Russian Revolution, which is called September. No, it's called October. It's about what happens before the revolution. It's the year before the revolution. So in that book, he talks about how the radicals within the revolutionary movement thought that the time was ripe for revolution, but they're the kind of sellouts in the revolutionary movement who are counseling caution would point to the fact that every time there was like a tiny peasant uprising in the outer periphery of the Russian empire, the czar would crush it with overwhelming force. And they would say, if the czar has got so many Cossacks to spare to, you know, shut down a tiny peasant uprising in wherever, Kazakhstan or something, think of what the czar will do if we try to rise up here. Think of how powerful he must be. And retrospectively, we realize that the reason the czar responded with such overwhelming shows of force to even the tiniest challenge to his authority is because he knew his authority was in decline. And that any crack that appeared in it could widen until the whole thing shattered. And it can be very hard to know a priori whether your enemies are strong or weak because they, in some ways they do the same thing. If they have power to spare, then they might just carelessly send a thousand Cossacks to put down 20 peasants. But also if they're terrified because they're running out of power, they might send a thousand Cossacks to put down 20 peasants. And so it's hard to know if the right are strong or weak, but definitely they feel like their victory is being threatened. And that is the same feeling that so many of us had when Roe v. Wade was rolled back, right? This thing that we fought for so hard is now being taken away from us. How is that possible? We thought we'd, we'd won this fight. And here we are fighting this fight all over again, back to square one, back to square minus one. And until we figure out how to deal with the people who lose a just revolution, which is a thing that as a planet we have not managed to do, uh, the people who claim to have done it best were the Germans. And for lots of reasons, the Germans, the German model is not great. You know, they call themselves the world champions of remembering. And yet most Germans don't think very hard about the fact that a lot of Nazi war criminals remained rich and powerful after the war that the socialists who were in the camps got no reparations and often had to see the judges who had sentenced them to die in the camps living out their lives as judges in the German state after the war, and that the queer people who were in the camps after the liberation were put back in the camps because being queer remained illegal. And when the camps trans were transformed to uh, formalized, regularized prisons, Gay people stayed in them and then were moved into regular prisons and spent many years, if not the rest of their lives, in prison. And so the remembering project of the Germans is extremely incomplete, and it's incomplete in other ways as well. Um, you have before and now in Germany, Gentile Germans who declare themselves to be arbiters of whether Jews can be critical of Israel. 
You have Gentile Germans who sit in roles as anti-Semitism czars who sanction Jewish groups for criticizing Israel. And so never again in Germany never meant never again. It meant never again to one or two of the select groups who were prosecuted by the Nazis in exactly the manner that the Nazis prosecuted them. And everything else was fair game. And so that is how you end up with far-right movements like uh, AFD, the Alliance for Deutschland, winning political power, and how you see these far-right currents surging in Germany as well as elsewhere in Europe. And um, this is a, a book about people who are thinking that issue through because they feel like they won and now they're having defeat snatched from the jaws of victory, that they are about to lose something that they thought they had durably won and they're about to lose it because they never figured out what to do with the losers. And so uh, what do they do? Well, what they do this time is they uh, marginalize them. They continue to resist extra political violence. They refuse to allow it to dominate them. And they refuse to you know, fall into the accelerationist trap of turning a your open society into a closed one to fight off violent militants which then becomes the kind of closed society in which violent militants prosper. So they learn the lesson of 9-11, which you know, we did not learn, where the terrorist attack, rather than provoking the conditions that make it seem like there is no politically legitimate way to affect change, and therefore violence is the only answer and radicalize a lot of people. Instead, they insist on providing the same political rights that they're trying to fight for even to their adversaries. And in the end, it all turns out to be moot, at least where they are, without giving away a spoiler, it just turns out that the climate emergency just overtakes some elements of that fight. Yeah, I wanted it to end more definitively in that way, because I think that is a central question. How do we how do we stop the the endless tug of war and one of the th one of the ways in which they do it that i think is so important is to actually show not not tell that is they create the new world within the literal ashes of the old which is always i think a more powerful way of doing that although it also risks having the thing that you built being attacked by those who who want to destroy it yeah. Look, I, I think that giving people a materially stable life, it doesn't mean that they won't still be reactionaries and doesn't mean that they won't be vulnerable to reactionary propaganda and demagoguery. But I do think that it is a powerful insulator for reactionary politics and demagoguery. There were lots of racist people before Donald Trump started campaigning, but it was hard to appeal to them because they were they were economically stable or upwardly mobile and that when people became downwardly mobile and were threatened with instability even if they remained objectively speaking well off the racism that they felt became more salient to their political choices right very few of us are one issue voters and there were lots of people who voted for obama who might have been racist and voted for Obama because the racism wasn't as important to their lives as other things in their lives, um, other priorities they had. And the Obama presidency, with its impunity for the wealthy criminals who destroyed the economy in 2008, 
and for the tech companies that participated in George Bush's warrantless spying and with its cover-up of CIA torture and with its failure to systemically address market concentration and allow monopolization and the concomitant problems for both the labor market and for consumers produced a vulnerability in the population to demagogues who came along and through their rhetoric upregulated the importance of racism to those people. I think it's just a lot harder to make racism the central issue of someone's life when their material needs are met and when they feel stable and safe. They still might be racist. They still might say and do mean things to people on a racist basis. They still might discriminate against people in hiring decisions or what have you, right? It's not to say that racism will be solved, but the extent to which racism becomes their, their cause, their overwhelming ethos, the thing that they devote their lives to, that is very hard to accomplish in a population that is well off and stable and feels secure. Well, these are all issues that come up in this novel, The Lost Cause, but it was a propulsive read. I totally enjoyed it. It was a really enjoyable book, and as has been this conversation, Corey Doctorow, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was lovely to talk with you again. Corey Doctorow. Go to writersvoice.net to read an excerpt from The Lost Cause. You can also find our previous conversations with Dr. O about his books, Walk Away, Radicalized, and Makers. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, where you can listen again for free or discover many more of our conversations since 2006. Tune in next week as we talk with Douglas Preston and Emma Donahue about 14 Days, a literary star-studded collaborative novel, a project of the Authors Guild, that takes place during the height of the COVID pandemic in New York City. Don't miss it. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon.